0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Sue Perdeaux about her biography of the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche entitled, I Am Dynamite, A Life of Nietzsche. Sue, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Mark.
0: I wonder if you could start us off by telling us what it was that led you to write a biography of Nietzsche.
1: Well, um, I am a biographer and i find that biographies are like they're like a kind of fall of dominoes one one leads to the next leads to the next really and um i am um half norwegian well three quarters really and my first biography was of edvard munch the norwegian painter who painted the scream and um the most interesting guy in his life was a Swedish playwright called August Strindberg. And Strindberg, um, in the 1880s, corresponded with Nietzsche. And as a direct result of that correspondence, he wrote his absolute masterpiece play, Miss Julie, very, very famous play, always being put on. And then Strindberg went to Berlin, where he hooked up with my first subject, with Edvard Munch, and the two of them became great friends, and they had a great bohemian time together. And Strindberg introduced Munch to Nietzsche's writings. And it was the following summer that Munch went back to Norway, and he painted The Scream. And I think, you know, there's no doubt that um, reading Nietzsche and particularly the thought, God is dead, played a large part in the composition of this extraordinarily famous painting. You know, God is dead. We're all alone on this earth. Help, scream. (laughs)
0: Nietzsche is a figure with whom many people have a superficial similarity and and that's one of the reasons why reading your book might uh enlighten them to aspects of his life of which they might not be aware for example you open the book by talking a a good deal about his relationship with music and i thought that was really fascinating i was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon that in particular upon his friendship with uh, richard wagner
1: yes well um as I said, you know, I'd written these two biographies and Nietzsche's writing was obviously very important to both men. And so I thought, OK, I'll go back and I'll read Nietzsche. I had been one of those teenagers who always had a Nietzsche in my back pocket um, and I hadn't, you know, read him since. And I thought it would be really interesting to see, uh, you know, how he stood up to me as a very grown up woman. So um I was very fascinated by his writing um and uh but I didn't think that I would dare write his biography at all you know much too difficult um and then I read his letters And um, I discovered such a wonderful um, human man there who I had no idea that, you know, that Nietzsche was so human. And there was a particular letter because, as you say, Nietzsche was very, very fond of music. And um, when he was 23, 24, um, he was becoming a professor of philology at Basel University. And he was invited to meet Richard Wagner. And Nietzsche absolutely worshipped Wagner's music. It was, you know, what made his life worthwhile. Wagner was 52 and world famous, and coming to the end of writing the Ring Cycle. And so Nietzsche thought, "Oh gosh, I, you know, I'd better have a new suit made for this." So he um, he went to his tailor and he ordered a suit. And the evening came, and the tailor arrived with the new evening suit. And Nietzsche tried it on. He writes all this in a letter, you know, he tells it like a story. So here I am, you know, trying on the suit and it fits beautifully. And then, of course, the tailor wants payment. And Nietzsche didn't have the money to spend, you know. Young men often don't. And so he he, he describes him and the tailor wrestling with the suit. And, of course, the tailor wins. And Nietzsche says, and there I was, an insignificant little man in my shirt tells King mm, well, my old black velvet will just have to be good enough, and he rushes off and he meets Wagner and they bond tremendously and it's the start of, you know, such an important friendship, the most important friendship in Nietzsche's life, really. And um, and I read that letter and I thought, good heavens, you know, Nietzsche's funny. He tells stories against himself. Um, this is, you know, this is something I didn't suspect at all. And that was really when I thought, well, you know, there might be room for a biography of Nietzsche, you know, um, putting emphasis on the life and putting sort of human flesh on those dry philosophical bones.
0: Another thing that your biography does is it not is it demonstrates just how close he was to all these current intellectual currents that were going through Europe at the time. These cultural currents, not just Wagner, but you have him uh, meeting this very impressive array of scholars and uh, performers in uh, Europe. Uh, during the latter half of the nineteenth century, and it really does push back against the image of the the, the scholar in the ivory tower who's uh, penning all these works that that, uh, that that reflect a lack of engagement. When in fact, as you demonstrate, he's very much a, a, in some respects at the center of these trends that are taking place in Europe at this time.
1: Uh, yes, I think I think particularly um, during the Wagner years, because of course. He, uh, Wagner is coming to the end of his 20-year um, composition of The Ring Cycle, that very important cycle of four operas. And um, it was really, um, it needed a new opera house built for the ring, because it has such a huge orchestra, etc. And so Wagner gets Nietzsche on board as almost a sort of propagandist, really, uh, to spread the word. And then the other person who Nietzsche is given a a room in Wagner's house, and he works in Wagner's house. And the other person who's given a room in Wagner's house is King Ludwig of Bavaria, um, who's bankrolling the whole Project, and so there's this 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 sort of intellectual circle who are trying to fu- push forward this new artwork that they all feel is incredibly important.
0: It really is interesting to consider that in the context of his childhood and his upbringing. I, I wonder if you could take us back a bit and explain uh, Nietzsche's uh, background, his his family mm. and his upbringing, and and and, and how that family uh, shaped and influenced him as a young man.
1: Yes. He was born in 1844 um, in a very, very tiny um, hamlet, really, almost an expanded farm in Röcken in in North Germany. And his father was a clergyman, and his mother was uh, the daughter of a clergyman. She hadn't received much education, but she was very pious. And Nietzsche is the first born to this very religious household. And then a couple of years later, his sister Elizabeth is born. And then the, finally there's baby Joseph. And um, when Nietzsche is about three years old, his father starts to lose his mind, basically, lose lose both his sight and his mind. He goes insane and he takes about a year um, eventually to die and it's it's quite mysterious um, it could be um, hereditary insanity. there was insanity in the family, it could be syphilis um, uh what was diagnosed after the postmortem was brain softening but that can cover a multitude of sins and particularly you know if a clergyman dies of tertiary syphilis you're you're going to disguise it a little bit in 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 those days. So we don't actually know what he died of. And then um Nietzsche was, as you can imagine, extremely affected by this. And he had a very strange dream. And it obviously meant a great deal to him because he writes about it and he dreamt that his father rose up from the grave in his grave clothes and hurried across the graveyard and came into the house and fetched baby Joseph and carried him back and the two of them disappeared into the father's grave. And this was the dream and um, sometime later, Joseph did in fact die. And so... Uh, this, well, insanity, death, early death, these were shadows. They cast very long shadows over Nietzsche's childhood and indeed the family, really. Um, and so he lives really all his life um, thinking, because his father was, I think, only 36 when he died. And Nietzsche has this thing of, you know, I may not live long and I may go mad. So I've really, you know, got a, got a sort of... Get there and do it now. So um, it was him and his mother and Elizabeth, and they, of course, had to move out of the, um, you know, out of the clergyman's house so that the next clergyman could take over the job. And they moved to a town called Nuremberg, and um, Nietzsche was sent to a tremendously intellectual school called Schufter. And, um, it was a sort of, um, it was in an old monastery and it was a sort of monastic, semi, semi-military, really, um, education. They were up at four, and every quarter of an hour was accounted for, and um, they weren't allowed to, to read any newspapers. Nothing of the present day was to, you know, sort of intrude on their education. While well, they became the most amazing classicists, and they were encouraged to speak Greek and um, Roman and, and Latin to each other. So that was was quite an education, really. Um, And Nietzsche, as you pointed out earlier, um, had this tremendous talent for music and tremendous love of music. And I think it was probably bound up also with his love of his father, who was also an amazing musician. And Nietzsche really first wanted to be a musician, but that that really wasn't considered a serious profession in that school at all. And so he was um, steered towards philology, um, which is, you know, the science of language, and particularly the science of, he was a classical philologist, so particularly the science of ancient Greek and and Latin.
0: And as you describe, he is a... uh really successful early on as a philologist to the point where he's able to uh, earn a position at Basel without even taking a degree.
1: That's right, that's right. And and he was only, he was 24, so he was the youngest professor that had ever had. And um, yeah, so, so there he was, a professor at Basel, yeah.
0: So why doesn't Nietzsche stay with philology? Why does he uh ultimately abandon that and 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 move on I mean, it, it was philology not satisfying for him uh was did he always use philology as as sort of a stopgap to bigger and better things
1: um, well he I, you know how it is. I think, I think. first of all, you know, if you're in your 20s and you get offered a, a, a flattering job and, and you think that's absolutely fine, you know, it's great, isn't it? And then after you've been doing it a few years, uh, you realize that maybe, maybe this isn't the right place for you. And he describes his fellow philologists as, um, ooh, let's think off the top of my head, blind, burrowing moles, burrowing underground after worms, and delighted when they can catch a worm in the dark, and paying no attention at all to the real problems of this world.
0: And that does, I I think, that highlights that contrast between the the young man who's going to Basel and the the person that you've already referenced to is... In, engaging with this foremost composer who is uh, in, involved in a lot of these cultural currents, that that transition really is an interesting one. And, and I, I thought that part of your book was very fascinating about how he starts out in philology, he, he he writes a couple books, and 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 then there's this point at which he he almost burns his bridges with with I believe it's his uh, second book, Birth of Tragedy, and 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 pretty soon he's uh, abandoning, uh, he he's he's losing his students, and you start to see this break emerging with him. And, and, and the university.
1: That's right. That's right. Because because of Wagner and because of thinking about Wagner, he's thinking really about the duality of man, and so he writes *The Birth of Tragedy*, which is famous for proposing that all culture, um, in the past and also going forward, um, relies on the dichotomy between the Apollonian the rational, the logical, and the Dionysian, which is the intuitive, the wild, the orgiastic, the drunken, if you like, um, and that there's got to be a balance between those two in order, in order for, for, for culture to flourish and for creativity to flourish. And this <laughs> this didn't really go down very well in sort of in Bismarck's Reich in the 70s, uh, where they didn't really, you know, logic and rationality and machines um, were the way forward. And and. Uh, you know, the thought of, 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 of resurrecting the Dionysian uh, virtues, um, uh, uh, you know, just just wasn't the flavour of the moment. So that lost him really his um, his students. There were only two students who signed on to his course afterwards, and really lost him his reputation amongst the philologists.
0: And at that point, he's already starting to push toward philosophy. He, you, you mentioned how he—you describe how he explores the idea of, of uh, taking a chair in philosophy instead, but that doesn't pan out.
1: It doesn't pan out, no. No. So in fact, you know, although although we, we call Nietzsche a philosopher, uh, he never held a philosophy chair. And um, up till now, really sort of, um, well, you know, up to the birth of tragedy, it's really a sort of cultural criticism rather than philosophy that he's been writing.
0: So as
1: that that
0: part of his life starts to uh, wind down, how, how does he then begin to branch out? What is it that he seeks to do as as that opportunity at Basel seems to be uh, closing to him?
1: Well, um, I, th- I think we need really in a way to go back to his school days um, to answer that question properly. Um, because Nietzsche was, um, I think, 14 um, when Darwin published his Origin of Species, you know, the Evolution. Um, and um, that really um, uh, is the foundation, if you like, for all of Nietzsche's thinking, um, because, you know, Darwin really sort of raised the big, big questions, you know, um, and um, that's really sort of where Nietzsche starts to think about The death of God and of course he's he's the the only one who really um, looks at what Darwin is saying and he he thinks, you know, the, the theory of evolution really challenges the whole universal mythology of form and design that shaped European sort of belief and purpose and morality and culture for over a thousand years. And um, no wonder everyone was was really denying the implications of Darwin, you know, because everything people had believed in, everything that gave life meaning, had had really been removed, you know, if you were going to kill God, um, you know, um, where do you find meaning? If there's no heaven to aim at, what are you aiming at? If religious rules no longer apply, you know, where do you find morality? And so this is really, right from the start, right from when he's at school, Nietzsche's um, asking these questions and and sort of writing about these questions. And I think that's what he felt was, you know, his task in life, really, to... um, to answer those questions, or to try to find answers to those questions.
0: So, how does he go about that process of of searching for those answers?
1: Well, it takes him a long time. Um, but um, when he's um, after no, no, he he doesn't he doesn't yet resign from Basel. He he takes. <laughs> <laughs> um, when he is still professor at Basel, and this is quite interesting, um, there is a vote for whether women should be um, allowed um, to attend lectures to become students. And um, Nietzsche votes yes. He's one of only four who vote yes. And this is quite ironical, really, given his um, you know, reputation for misogyny that's so widespread. But anyway, he, bo- he votes yes. And when he goes to the, um, first Bayreuth festival, when Wagner's actually got his operas up and running, um, Nietzsche meets a, a prominent feminist called Melvido von Mesenbug, and, um, she kind of takes him under her wing. And, um, then, um, they go to Sorrento to found what they call a school for free spirits, um, which is wonderful. And and the free spirits are people who are prepared to look the death of God in the eye and see what on earth, you know, the consequences are. And so he writes a a book called um, Beyond Good and Evil, and um, it's really looking into. Um, all the things that you believe and all the things that you've been taught to believe um, and um, just to see whether they um, whether they stand up to your examination or whether they're just sort of superstitions that have been handed down handed down and so when when you've done this, um, you have then an idea of yourself um, and then then You are then you, um, he says, you you, um, become who you are. You have then become who you are because you know what you are. You know that you're not just a bundle of borrowed opinions, yeah? Then you have to look at your life, and then you have to love your life. You have to examine it very carefully, and you have to love your life, particularly, if you like, all the things you've done wrong all the mistakes you've made all the pain and the suffering all of those you must examine and all of those you must chew you must learn to love he calls it amor fati love your life and then if you if a demon came and said you've got to live your life all over again to the end of time, you would then greet the demon with great joy, saying, my life on earth is the only thing I have here. There's nothing outside. And I would rejoice in living it again and again and again. Then you're an ubermensch, because then you've purged yourself of guilt, um, of, um, of decadence and of resentment. And then you can go forward into the world, strong and, you know, um well, authentically. You're you're no longer inauthentic, you're no longer borrowing other people's beliefs. So that's what this school of free spirits was doing. And um Malvida, um, the um the feminist who, who sort of set up the school. In incidentally, it never came to anything. It was just a theory, but there were people who came in and out. And um and there were quite a lot of um early feminist women who came because, you know, women were not barred from this experiment. And there were a couple who Nietzsche encouraged mightily, gave them reading lists, and so on and so forth. And this particular couple of Women I'm thinking of, both of them um, achieved their doctorates at, at a Swiss university. They were among the first, well, I think one of them was the first woman to achieve a doctorate at a Swiss university. So it's, it's quite, it's a pretty sort of revolutionary time, really. You know, you're not only saying there's probably no God, but you're also saying, you know, okay, um, women who didn't have proper education then, and certainly didn't have the vote, okay, you know, they can come along with us. If they're clever enough and keep up, on we go. uh,
0: Nietzsche's relationship with women is something that really stands out in the book. I was particularly struck by your... sections talking about his sister Elizabeth and what a formidable personality mm-hmm. it was. And I especially thought your description of her enterprise in Paraguay was, was of a special interest because <laughs> it, it really, it really seemed to be the point at which she really st- stands out a- a- as, you know, independent from her mother and everything and, and you really get a sense as to it, uh, who she was and and, and, and it, this this question then comes up of well you know, how much do, does that end up influencing how, how Nietzsche thinks of women this, this incredibly forceful personality who engages in this this rather remarkable adventure?
1: That's right. That's right. Well, she obviously was a very strong personality because, I mean, when they were children, uh, they had a natural history book at home. And there was an entry on The llama, you know, the animal, the llama. And it said the llama is a very obstinate animal. And When it's cross, it spits, foul-smelling spit. And when it really doesn't want to do something, it's so obstinate, it just lays down on the ground and says, I want to die. And so Nietzsche then um, picked this up, and forever after, he called his sister the llama. (laughs) <laughs> um, because he, <laughs> and you get these letters saying, "Dear Lama, dear faithful Lama," you know, and um, yeah, and she, Elizabeth, quite likes it, except for the foul-smelling spit bit. She she never she never quotes that one, um, but otherwise, she's quite pleased to be called a Lama. And um, and Nietzsche, again, um, he tries to educate her. Um, When he's at school and he gets his religious doubts, he says says to Elizabeth, you know, if you want to be happy, believe, but life is really much more interesting if you introduce doubt and, and try to become who you are and what you are, rather than just a sort of Christian cipher, you know, someone who says they believe in Christianity because it's the easiest thing to do. So that's him and elizabeth and and she he gives her he he wants her to go to university lectures, but she doesn't like that she likes the old fashioned idea of being a a woman being a subsidiary you know to a man and being flirtatious and charming and getting her way that way and then in the eighties she um she she um well, I don't think she falls in love, actually, but she's, um, she feels it's sort of her last chance to get married, and there is this um, horrible anti-Semitic uh, nationalist agitator called Bernard Forster, and he's, he's a sort of Nazi before there were Nazis, really, you know, he gets into fights in the street because, you know, he thinks people are Jews, and he's, he's a real horror. Um, and incidentally, actually, before we get onto this, um, the minute, uh, one of the reasons that Nietzsche broke with Wagner was Wagner's anti-Semitism and his nationalism. So Nietzsche's against both those. So anyway, so Elizabeth, um, eventually marries, um, Bernard Furster and Nietzsche refuses to meet him because he says, you know, his views are just. Impossible. Um, they shake, but Nietzsche feels that he must shake him hands once and wish him luck, and that's it. And so off they go to Paraguay to uh, f- found a, an anti-Semitic colony, where only Aryans of pure blood will go. And they get these kind of carpenters and farmers and about 60 families, and they all go out to Paraguay. And the whole thing's a sort of terrible swindle because Elizabeth and Furster don't own the land at all. And these poor people have paid them to go out and there's no sewage, well, there's no sewage, there's no roads, there's no infrastructure, nothing. And um, it becomes a great scandal. And Furster kills himself um, but Elizabeth is still sort of um, sending home wonderful propaganda things, saying, oh, it's all going so beautifully, all going so beautifully. So that's that's Elizabeth. And, I mean, every good book, even a book about a philosopher, needs, needs a villain. And, oh, boy, <laughs> we've got one in her. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you, uh, you, you're describing there how uh, – you, he, Nietzsche was against uh, nationalism and anti-Semitism and, and, and that – or and and how – and that gets to sort of how he is, is misrepresented, in, in, as especially with his association with Nazism in the 1930s, which, uh, you know, cherry-picked what they wanted from it to represent what – you know, to give themselves a sort of intellectual patina. Uh, but I, I thought it was interesting also how uh, he is – yeah, and it still has that fascinating association. I mean, the, the idea that he is with Wagner all that time and that only really comes out later in, in near, near, near the tail end. How, what, what led, uh, uh, Nietzsche to that point, did he suddenly realize that that Wagner was anti-Semitic and nationalist, or was it just becoming uh, more evident as 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 Wagner's fame grew and as as Bayreuth became much more of an event and attracted all the attention from the Kaiser and 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 other various notaries?
1: Yes, I I I think that's that's certainly it um, because he was very. Um, he was very idealistic about bayreuth and about wagner and um it became a sort of um, society circus really uh, you know the ring cycle every year everyone dressing up in fancy clothes to go there rather than a festival for the masses to 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 reinvigorate um germany's culture Um, but um, what were we, you were talking about oh uh, yeah the breach with Wagner Um, yes well um, the Franco-Prussian war broke out and Nietzsche, although Nietzsche felt right from the start he hated the Reich and he hated what Bismarck was doing to Germany uniting Germany in a huge great militaristic power and Nietzsche said I'm he said several times i don't mind i'm i may be a bad german but i'm a good european and he felt that europe was a tremendously important um cultural unit and he saw he saw uh, nothing at all fruitful in nationalism uh, he saw it as divisive and then of course the franco-prussian war breaks out and nietzsche doesn't um, want to fight because because he sees himself as a good European, but he does feel that he should serve his country, and so he volunteers as um, as an as as an ambulance attendant. And um, he sees the terrible, terrible battlefields. He goes in trains from battlefield to battlefield with the wounded, taking them to hospital, picking them up again, and so on, um, including the Battle of Worth, where tens of thousands died. The number isn't exact. And um, there, from the people who he's nursing, he contracts um, dysentery and diphtheria and possibly syphilis. Um, we 're not quite sure about that, um, and so he has to you know he has to um, uh, take you know take take compassionate leave um, and then he comes back and sees Wagner and Wagner is in full flight of of nationalism and rubbing his hands at the french suffering and wagner 's even refusing to write to read letters that are written to him in French, you know so Wagner is being totally absurd. And this, I think, caused a very sharp division. Nietzsche's, you know, the scales sort of fell from Nietzsche's eyes. And his dislike of Wagner's anti-Semitism, well, he could now express. Um, Nietzsche is not in, innocent of anti-Semitism himself, you know, anti Semitic remarks when he is with Wagner. and But also... Um, when you're unpicking the whole and anti-Semitism thing, uh, what you want to look at is, it's not his hatred of the Jewish people, very often, it's his hatred of the Jewish religion, and indeed Judeo-Christianity, so it's not just confined to the Jewish religion, it's Judeo-Christianity. So it's it's quite a, you know, it's quite a sort of intricate and complicated question, all that.
0: We've been Talking about uh, uh, Nietzsche's books and his arguments, one of the things you do in in your book though is you describe the challenge he faced in terms of getting his ideas out there. I, I thought that the the mundane subject of him getting published was 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 most fascinating part because you, you you have this example of a, of a. of of a person who is writing these books that some of which are going to be profoundly uh important to western thought and he is struggling uh, simply to get them out there because apart from perhaps a few of his friends nobody's reading them and his friends are reading them because he's sending them gratis copies
1: that's right that's right so so you know Anyone listening who who's thinking of self publishing go ahead <laughs> <laughs> No poor man poor man no um, it, it, it he he'd written about Five, and um, they weren't of course selling and um, on average they, I think The Birth of Tragedy sold 300 copies when you think what a famous book it is now um, and then his publisher simply refused at, at when he started writing when he wanted to publish Thus Big, Zarathustra and from then on Nietzsche had to pay for publication of his own books and um, they you know they sold in tiny tiny numbers um, so but but he, he he kept on writing it's rather marvelous really
0: his pace of writing uh, near uh, you know over the course of the 1880s it' was just you describe how he finishes one book and he then he almost immediately starts another one mm. he, he's, he's mm. producing them at such a rapid pace.
1: Mm, it's it's brain fever, but then his i mean his his well usually they're pretty short. Um, and, um, he, we haven't really gone into Nietzsche's health. Again, we have to go back to his childhood and when he was at school and he had terrible problems with his stomach and terrible problems with his eyes. And so he would spend weeks in bed in a darkened room, uh, because the light hurt his eyes. So much. it was like do you say migraines or migraines in America? Anyway, it was one migraines. of those. <laughs> migraines okay. Migraines lasting a long, long time. Plus uh, you know, stomach and vomiting, sometimes even vomiting blood. Um, and of course it's it's quite extraordinary, you know, when you think um it's not so long ago, but how they coped with this was so medieval. They would they would put leeches on his ears and on his head to suck away the blood, um, which he hated, as you can imagine. And he felt it did him no good, and he hated these revolting leeches. Um, so he has these um, terrible, you know, eye eye problems. Difficult to see. So he's not like a writer like you and me who can sit down all day at the computer and produce words, words, words. Um, He really has to ration his time. So, what he does, he finds that it's very inspirational to walk. Uh, So he walks and he has a little notebook in his pocket and a little pencil. And he's wearing his green eye shade and probably a peaked cap over that. And when a thought comes to him, he'll try and note it down. Um, of course, at the end of the day, um, he probably can't read quite a lot of his writing, and that makes him quite cross. But anyway, this um, makes this is the origin, really, of his aphoristic style, his writing in bursts and writing in very uh, concentrated bursts so that, you know, many of his books are written within a space of two or three weeks. So he's thinking, 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 then he's, you know, getting it all down and then he's putting it together. Terrible laborious process.
0: But it really is the only one that that he can do given his medical ailments and 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 his and his, mm. uh, and his uh, other situ- in his broader situation.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. So he suffered, poor man.
0: So, could you describe the events that lead to his institutionalization? Because he, the, you you, ca- you capture a lot of the drama of the, the sense of a person who is increasingly in his own world, and 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 how and and, and how people have to suddenly now come to terms with that.
1: Yes. Um, uh, uh, there's, uh, there's there's sort of endless toing and froing about well about a couple of things really about whether he had syphilis or not whether it was syphilis or in in, in uh, hereditary insanity and um, and also the onset of this when it when it started because as you said he wrote a heck of a lot of books in his last year he sort of wrote three just like that and they are entirely magical and inspired but there are people who would say that they are actually um you know the result of a, a <laughs> an, an overheated mind um but the, you know that doesn't matter um because there are plenty of marvelous poets who, who who well like say samuel taylor coleridge who you know who wrote on on laudanum and opium and 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 you know sort of inspired by more than than just me I thought um so he um he writes these books, and then um he goes to Turin, which he finds a very very sympathetic city he loves turin um and then um he in a square in turin um he breaks down. And it's a square where there are a lot of cab horses, you know, ready to, to pull passengers in cabs round the town and so on and so forth. And they're thin and their, their ribs stick out and they're pathetic creatures, really. And Nietzsche is just overcome with pity. And he puts his arms around a cab horse and he just weeps. And, um, and that's it. And, and, and his mind is gone. Um, and then luckily his, um, his landlord um, comes and rescues him. Um, and then um, well, then he um, then he 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 is alive for the following eleven years, unfortunately, in the loving care of his sister Elizabeth. and um, yeah, that's that's the end of his sane life, really.
0: And yet, it's just at that point that you you start to see people picking up his ideas and starting to actually do something with him. It's part of that final tragedy that he's fading from the scene as as more and more people are starting to engage with what he's trying to say.
1: That's that's the... Absolutely amazing thing. And you remember at the start, I talked about um, my biography of Strindberg, you know, the Swedish um, playwright Strindberg. And it was in, well, it was just the year before, really, um, that that Nietzsche lost his mind that he and Strindberg started corresponding because there was a Danish uh, literary critic called Georg Brandes, who was tremendously famous literary critic he did sort of tours of the united states where he got garlanded with you know bay leaves and things and he promoted um nietzsche's writings and so they were they were in scandinavia in america etc etc and um yes and and uh, you know the year he went mad his writing took off
0: well we've taken up a lot of your time but before we go could you tell us what you're working on now
1: I wish I knew. <laughs> I, I wish I knew. Who do you do after Nietzsche? All, all suggestions welcome. Actually, the thing is, I haven't yet put Nietzsche to bed. You, you've got to get your, your subject out of your head before you can let anyone else in. So I hope somebody else will come knocking at the door soon. We'll see.
0: Well, I, I hope that is very soon indeed. Sue Perdo, thank you very much for ta- taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you very much, Mark.